audio invasion continues. Boxeo is back, is in this corner returned with one goal in mind to come like a thief in the night and snatch up your free time by ingesting you, injecting you, if you will, with a lethal dose of that performance-enhancing audio. The Brian Campbell coming at you. My voice is a bit washed, fired up on this happy 4th of July weekend. But I got to tell you something. Every time we think we might take a week off on the boxing version of the In This Corner podcast, something crazy keeps happening. It's that kind of year in 2017 for the Sweet Science. And by the way, that is a good thing after the debacle of 2016 on the every other year theory. I'm sure uh, Rafe Books, my man, who I'm going to welcome in in a second, remembers how bad 2014 was. But it's no rest for the wicked on the ITC as I was forced to track down that ta- aforementioned tag team partner, Rafe Bartholomew, yank him away from grilling and shooting off fireworks at a nondescript cookout in Southern California. But we got a big show planned for you, including a, a fun sit-down that we teased last week that you'll hear later in the show with Gennady Golovkin promoter Tom Loeffler of K2, who looked back at the making of Triple G as we close in on that September 16th. Super fight against Canelo Alvarez. Tom's going to break down what he first saw in this quiet Kazakh kid and really fill in the blanks on Golovkin's backstory. Also, update us on former heavyweight champion Vladimir Klitschko. Will he ever step in the ring again? Very good talk with Tom. But before we get there and before we get into the unexpected thunder from down under, yes, I'm talking about Pacquiao Horn. Allow me to ask you to do a personal favor. If you like what you heard from this combat sports carnival, if you see something, say something. Yeah, there it is. That's the line. Head on over to Apple Podcasts. It only takes a minute. Subscribe, rate, review. It'll help us keep this show and get the big name guests and give you all the boxing, MMA, and pro wrestling analysis that you've come to know coming at you at a regular basis. Let's consummate this relationship already, people. It's time. But with that long intro out of the way, it's time to tag in my bro hammer. You, only this time you can touch this. He's my personal young MC, and all he needs is one mic. Rafe Bartholomew, Big Red, there's a good chance you might be washed right now. You might be in mid-party. I might have plucked you away from a cookout. So I've got one idea here to sort of, you know, help you out. Come on, let me, let me put some water on your ball. How is it, my man? <laughs> oh, Ruben, thank God. I'm, I'm, I, forget the performance-enhancing audio. I mean, that's the stuff right there. Just a little of that cold ice water just brings you back to life. And gets me because you know what this weekend, you know, just imagine if I were an AP news writer covering the story, you know, covering the fight way back in the day, you know, where the glory years of boxing AP sending us all around the world to cover fights. Dateline, Brisbane, a star is horn. Whoa, I was going to say, are you ready to hashtag get horn? Talk about a headline there. Wow. The unexpected, the unthinkable happened. Jeff. Horn, the unheralded former school teacher, lifted, some say stole the WBO welterweight title from Amane Pacquiao in Brisbane, Australia. Look, Rafe, I'd love to go back and when we played as kids, right? But things changed, and finally, Manny looks washed, and that's just the way it is. So I got to get your knee-jerk reaction to, to Horn's stunning upset. Back in the day when I was young, I'm not in a kid anymore, but... Sometimes I sit and wish Manny was good again. Um, no, uh, yeah, I, hey, 
it was uh man he didn't look great um he didn't i mean so going you know let's rewind a couple months um it was pretty clear even though you get the normal array of freddie roach comments about you know first he's looking bad then he's knocking people out and sparring then he's going for the knockout and he looks as good as ever like freddie tells you sort of every version of every story you want to hear in the lead up to a fight but I had paid, I'd kept a close enough eye on the local press in the Philippines to, to see that this was genuinely a, a slow, bad camp in which, you know, it seemed like they were overlooking or not taking Jeff Horn that seriously. So um, I guess, and, and, and I say that, and we'll get into this, I say that uh, while also believing that Manny deserved to win this fight, um, but uh he it does it, some of the performance the washed appearance there uh might not be that he is just totally done cook stick a fork in him might have a little bit to do with not preparing well not having a great camp um you had a lot of newspaper writers in manila saying that like you know oh it was different today because when we walked into the gym they were working out uh so and then and then manny's camp turning around saying well oh yeah that's just because we've been working out at odd times and just not <laughs> when you guys arrive um so so are you saying yeah, this they, like look was this muhammad ali leon spinks one where an aging champion was sort of like i got this one this guy's nothing and then he was outworked out hustled and upset and we're gonna see pacquiao come back in a rematch and look you know rewind and look better than ever or you know is this not your father's Manny Pacquiao and he just can't bring it that bring it back to that level and he was in there against you know someone I described as a lamb brought to the slaughter I mean that's what it was Rafe it was supposed you know he, Horn didn't know this was a damn exhibition right he he didn't know that you know like it's like this was supposed to be the setup fight to fix his pay-per-view brand in Pacquiao and to snap that knockout streak and to get the wheels turning for either the Crawford pay-per-view or the Floyd rematch is this just a sen a sitting senator who I, I look again? There's been a lot of conspiracy theories I like to bring up about Manny. I don't think the shoulder injury against Floyd ever happened. I'm not even sure he's actually a sitting senator. Rafe, can a sitting senator prepare for a, a championship fight like this? Well, he is a sitting senator. I mean, but and also a semi-active uh, basketball player, coach, um, you know, and a championship fighter until uh, Saturday night. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, no, I, I, I well. I don't know how if he can actually get together a real, you know, world-class training camp the way he would uh, five years ago. Now that he's, you know, trying to also spend his days in the, you know, Philippine legislature, um, but he can train better than I think he trained for this one. And is the the Manny of old coming back if they have a rematch? Of course not. Um, but I think that you know it's not crazy to think that he could re recapture the form that he had last year against, you know, Tim Bradley and Jesse Vargas, which was good enough to beat two good fighters. Um, so that could come back. And, and if they, if he, and, and I, I think if they actually do make a rematch, we will see, um, is it, you know, did, was it just to, you know, he took him lightly, didn't, you know, wasn't in the best shape, um, wasn't able to follow up on, you know, the times he hurt horn, uh, enough to get him out of there or to, to really, you know, make his point about, make a point about winning the fight. Um, or is he truly washed? I mean, if he comes back and horn just beats him, then, you know, many, many, then, 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 then it's a wrap. Um, let's talk about the, let's talk to me about the fight a little bit though, Brian. I mean, I, I like where, and the reaction, are you, you know, I, I'm, I'm taking it. You are a, a seasoned boxing, uh, media professional who is, who is not, 
one of these types to throw around the R word too, too, uh, you know, too cavalierly. Yeah, come on. This is this is my sort of what I've been upset at in the reaction to this fight. All right, you know, I've I've said it on every platform possible. Written a column on CBSSports.com that I encourage you to read. This was not a robbery, and I and it was you know something that when you and I were trading DMs when I when I slid right into that DM, you were sort of like it's almost creating this weird division. The the, the debate afterwards of like people that are consider themselves the real hardcore boxing experts versus more of the casual observers. I it, it kind of does feel like that this was not a robbery this was a close competitive fight with a wrong decision now you know all things said where, where did I score I scored the draw I was sort of more closer to the actual decision where I felt like Manny he just didn't close the door and he had an aggressive guy whether those punches were landing cleanly or not Horn forced Manny Pacquiao to fight the full three minutes of every round which is what Manny Pacquiao in his late 30s does not want to do there's ring generalship in there he was forcing Manny to fight a, a, a pace a style he didn't want to he was awkward all of those things I scored it a draw had you put a gun to my head and said which fighter deserved it I would have said Manny. So I understand that the decision was wrong. The 117-111 is an outlier, horrible CJ Ross, 114-114 Pacquiao, or, you know, Floyd Canelo type card. You throw that out. It was a bad card. The other two, 15-13, not a robbery because they fit the narrative of how the fight actually played down. And I know everyone's going on about the CompuBox numbers. You know, Pacquiao reportedly landed almost double what, what Horn did. And I get that, but here's the thing. Look, the judges obviously don't have the, the, the punch numbers. The judges don't have Twitter to hear everybody else's opinion. And the judges don't have the American announced teams, which are constantly seducing, seducing might be a bad word, tricking the casual audience I'm that are watching. I'm always seduced by Teddy Atlas. Exactly. I, don't know about you. I mean, every time the man opens his mouth, I start to melt, which is exactly <laughs> what he, that was his, that was his, that was his big line in the whole thing. He's melting. It's like he they're sedu melting. seducing the audience to believe that it is a robbery when, look, in reality, it was a close competitive fight. And it just comes down to, I think so many fans, don't score fights. And that's fine, right? You're watching from home. You got a beer. You're checking Twitter, whatever. And when you don't score fights and you watch and don't really fully understand the 12-round scoring system, then you're going to see one fighter dominate in, in certain moments and think, well, that fighter definitely won. Guys, this is the same thing of Kovalev Ward 1, where everybody screamed robbery in a close tactical fight where not a lot happened. When every type person that said, oh, you're crazy, that was a robbery, you go, hey, how'd you score it? They go, oh, well, you know, I didn't actually score it, but I saw Kovalev score that knockdown, you know, and he definitely won. You want to know why you thought he definitely won? Because our good friends Max Kellerman and Harold Letterman were beating down their opinion. And in this case, in this fight, Pacquiao Horn, you had people like Teddy Atlas, like Stephen A. Smith, who were beating the, the, the drum so hard and banging it. He bangs, he bangs, banging that robbery drum. Bang! That he, this was not the old Joshua Cloudy Manny Pacquiao. Bang! No, bang, and bang. it's like... Have another one! Bang, bang! Everybody's bang. going nuts. Guys, this was not... You know what a robbery is? Pacquiao Bradley won from 2012. That is a robbery. This was a close competitive fight with generous scorecards toward the overachieving local fighter who worked hard. But what did we have to hear about in the aftermath? This Rafe. You're Manny Pacquiao. You do not need to be getting knocked out and put to sleep by Joe Horn. Yes, Stephen A. Smith, Joe Horn. You, you, you crapped on the guy the whole time. You had a predetermined opinion that a lot of us had that Horn shouldn't have been allowed in there. Well, I think that played into a lot of people either 
overscoring Horn because he was overachieving or underscoring him because he was a jobber. And guess what? He is a jobber. Guys, you know what I saw in there? I saw a new Manny Pacquiao, but the wrong kind of new Manny Pacquiao. You know, Schaefer would have hated this. Let me say first something. We have we have a new Manny Pacquiao. Yeah, we have an old Manny Pacquiao. That's what I saw because Manny Pacquiao of not just 10 years ago, five years ago, three years ago, like you mentioned, Manny Pacquiao of last November when he took the title from Vargas, that guy would have knocked Horn out and made him pay for closing distance. He couldn't in this fight. Took him four to five rounds to pick up the awkward rhythm. Then he just couldn't keep up with the pace. Pacquiao deserved to lose this fight. It wasn't the right decision, but he deserved to lose it. What the what the hell does that mean, Brian? Like he it wasn't the right decision, but he deserved to lose. Because he like, left the it, door open no sense. for subjective. Look, this is watcher. this is my only. Oh, slow down, chill out. No, this is this is really my thing about us. Uh, you know, more hardcore boxing observers and fans kind of jump swooping in off the top rope to like smack up all the casual fans for not understanding the sport. Chill out. Like sometimes it's okay. Like like. Boxing, one of the great things about boxing is that you like, of course, there are different levels to people's understanding of the sport and there are and people and, and people who have done it and trainers and really been in the ring understanding in ways that that we just can't if we haven't. But um, but even someone just walking in off the street, uh, you know, it is a when it boils down to it, it's a fight. And you can watch it and be like, oh, this guy is getting the better of it. Like, you, this guy is a little bit faster. Or this guy's punches are landing. Or this guy's punches hit harder. This guy seems more hurt. That kind of stuff, it's such an easy sport to go in and get at least a basic feel for. Now, and, and there are ways in which, obviously, that misleads fans and the public when, when we have these sort of close fights that come out slightly skewed with, with not a robbery decision, but a bad decision. But... You, I just, I mean, like, if you're going to say that Pacquiao won, that you think Pacquiao deserved, like, like, you know, did, fought the better fight, then you can't say that he also deserved to lose. Like, Well, you, you know, know what I really mean. I mean, he left the door open. That's what I really mean, because it's a subjective thing, right, Rafe? So you left the door open for three guys sitting by the ring to reward the guy coming forward. And by the way, yes. people like Harold Letterman always reward the guy coming forward. So it isn't that much of a stretch for Horn to win this Harold, fight. No, you think, I mean, well, we can ask Harold what he would, you know, I'd, I'd like to hear how Harold might have scored, scored this. But I don't think he would have been giving Horn rounds just for coming forward, for, 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 for forcing the action. Because one, I mean, Manny was going to, would, you know, is going to throw punches anyway. Uh, he's not a fighter who you really need to force the action against. Two, you know, it's called effective aggression. Aggression, right? That's the category. It's not just aggression. So yes, you can, you can, you can throw some ring generalship at me, but <laughs> I think that uh, in general, you know, landing harder punches, cleaner punches. Forget about CompuBox because you know that that doesn't doesn't. It can be misleading. Um, but just you know, you didn't need stats to to watch that fight and be like. You know, Mandy, Manny's, you know, Manny's gloves are landing on Jeff Horn's face a lot more often and harder <laughs> than Jeff Horn's gloves are landing on Manny's head. And 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 honestly, I was surprised as much. I mean, like that the bet and and all that said, the thing the sort of takeaway is how easy it was for Manny to get hit by Horn. You know, I mean that was sort of the the thing that you're like, oof. And and can you guys, can you savages now? I I'm guessing we'll stop 
calling for Manny's head to be served on a platter to uh, Terrence Crawford yes, and Errol yes. Spence at this point? Were you are you going to back off this insane? I mean, it didn't. It wasn't insane before, but it was always a bad. It, they were always going to be bad matchups for him, uh, either because of style or the size of someone like Spence uh, and just Manny's age. Like, I'm hoping that now at least it kind of it kind of opens a nice uh, exit strategy for Manny uh, if if he wants to take it. Now, I mean. Boxers taking the right exit strategy is a whole, you know, you, you know, there's Never a million books written about it, but he has, there's an opportunity now for him to be like, all right, I'm going to train hard, win the rematch and walk out and walk away after that. Problem is if he gets that belt back, then he wants to defend it. Somebody, then someone's going to want it off him again. Um, well, no, th- but by the way, there are, there are washed big name marquee fights he could still take if he wanted to. And when I say that, I mean guys like Amir Khan, who would probably outclass him for a while, but then Manny could knock him out at any time. Adrian Broner, if he's not serious. There are sort of wash super fights available for him. But I think to your point of guys like me going, Manny, you're still pound for pound at 38. You're still amazing. Why are you not fighting Crawford? I no longer want him to see him fighting Crawford, Thurman, Spence, on and on. I, I agree with you on that. My thing, I, so you got to ask, what am I really mad at? Am I mad at the casual fans? Am I mad at the Stephen A. Smiths who are just screaming? Am I mad at every Sports Center anchor who comes on and says, oh, there was a robbery down under? They didn't watch the fight. They didn't score it. They just watched round nine when Pacquiao almost finished Horn. And by the way, what version of Pacquiao would n- ever not finish Horn when he had him that brutally beaten in round nine? It's like. Well, I mean, you, we've seen uh, sometimes you never know, you know, I mean, you never know what kind of Aussie you're going to get. I mean, sometimes you get washed Gale <laughs> and he's like, you know, flopping around on the mat against Miguel Cotto. Sometimes you get these guys who basically have, you know, Brandon Rios chin and uh, and Horn appeared to have a, 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 you know, appears to have a very, very good chin. He's a tough guy. He, he fought re- his face he off. At, what's that? He fought his he fought his balls off. I mean, there's no yeah, question about his, it. He fought his ass. Off. I mean, he fought very hard and and deserves a lot of credit. And I think, you know, I, I'm not I'm willing to call him sort of a, a fringe contender at welterweight too to to fight that well even against a bad version, the, maybe the worst version of Pacquiao we've seen, you know, in this later late stage of his career. Pacquiao but couldn't handle to- the swarm of bees. That hornet <laughs> was all over him. Killer bees, y'all. It ain't safe no more. I mean, hashtag get horn. The hornet was in his grill and. Uh, I just will say I'll say this as a little aside. I kind of like all the all the craziness because boxing is crazy, and that's why we're great. into the sport. I don't, I don't know why people are so mad. I mean, okay, I'm, here's why okay, people are so mad. All these, no, 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 no. Let's 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 celebrate it before oh, we okay. tear it. Let down. it celebrate it. Like, it, it is because it, it's it was, the theater of the bazaar. There was some hilarious stuff going on. Plus, like the Twitter timeline for a boxing match was so weird because it was on HBO uh, on ESPN. You had all the all of like. The basketball Twitter people were taking time out of their free agency <laughs> reporting, their scoops to be like, "What's happening here?" Like Aaron so Rodgers, many- Samuel L. Jackson, everybody's Samuel L. Jackson everybody's. Oh, it's the word. But here, okay, but here's then it crosses over into the problem, and this is when it oh, becomes wait, wait, a problem. More good stuff. All right, go celebrate. There, go celebrate. Go celebrate. There, we got. We got. Amazing humor out of Tim Bradley and Teddy Atlas. Just, I mean, poor Tim Bradley. Just the 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 faux pas when he was talking about the Japan, them Japan, the Japanese fighters at the at the very end, saying like, you know, and we're in Argentina. I mean, 
oh, it was so, it was just like such a great, like, you know, just funny boxing stuff happening. Teddy losing his mind, going up the horn and saying like, you know, you know, you lost a fight, right? Uh, I mean, like, by the way, that was reminiscent to the night before the Hall of Fame induction. I think it was 2014 or 15 on a Friday night fights from outside of Canastota where Teddy is interviewing Oscar De La Hoya. And instead of celebrating and saying, Oscar, you're going in the hall tomorrow. Congratulations. He's basically like, why did you throw away your career and, and uh, wimp out against Trinidad late in that and then turn to drugs? Like it was like he just like he loves just just peeing on everything. You know what I mean? It's just like, oh, there's a there's something positive happening. Let me just pee on it. It was great. It was great stuff. So I'm saying overall, I think even even with uh, some controversy and the, the a little bit of a, a false claim about it being a robbery, you know, uh, in the in the general public says, you know, understanding of what happened in the fight. Um, I think it's still a good thing. I don't think it's a bad thing for boxing that, 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 you know, there was a fun, crazy fight with a controversial outcome that had everyone talking about, including all these mainstream sports figures who we most of the time are like, how come you don't pay attention to boxing? I don't think it's right for us to, or I, I guess it's, oh, you look, do whatever you want. Right. I mean, right or wrong is not the right way to frame it, but I, I, for me, I don't care if, if Stephen A. Smith is wrong about a few things. I think it's better for the sport to have Stephen A. Smith and Max Kellerman and all these guys. I mean, Max is Max. He's going to talk about boxing no matter Max, what. Max, Max. have it front and center. Samuel Jackson tweeting about it. I, I just think it was a fun, weird night, and, and I'll take it. Okay, you're right. It won't hurt the sport. It was a fun night. It brought it into the conversations of the world again, you know, front and center. The rematch will have a built-in storyline. People will care even if they rip it. The problem I had as the boxing protector, and look, we all know it's like being in an abusive, screwed-up family where it's like you're the one who knows more than anyone how abusive and screwed-up that family is. But then when people start talking about your family name, you, you get mad and you want to step up. And when I saw celebrity after celebrity who never watch or tweet about boxing going, this is why nobody watches boxing. This is why we can't have nice things, blah, blah, blah. It's like, stop. You didn't watch the fight. You didn't score the fight. Again, it was a close competitive fight, so stop this already. But let me shift this conversation to another angle and say, I wonder if it did expose, though, the need that we've had for years for a new scoring system, that the 10-9 system is broken, that there's number one, people don't understand the 10-9 system because they watch a fight and think that the judges give a score at the end. I really think people believe that, that people think judges watch a fight and then give a final score at the end, when obviously it's 12 separate fights, 12 separate rounds independent of each other. But is that 10-9 constantly hurting us, where in Ward Kovalev 1, you had nothing but close 10-9 rounds, yet if there's ever a round finally where someone dominates and it wasn't enough for a traditional 10-8 round, that 10-9 round means the same. Is that... Is this the exposure of that longtime problem in your eyes, Rafe? I don't know. I mean, I, 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 not unless there is some brilliant way to fix it. I, 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 do I really care? I think this is just part of the sport that as people get drawn in and, and hopefully like it more, you come to understand that sometimes you get these results where like it is possible in boxing to have these fights where one guy clear, sort of clearly gets the better of the action, but doesn't as clearly win the, you know, win on the card. Yeah, now, Jerry Pacquiao, Jerry Provodnikov, right? It's the same fight. All, yeah, I mean, and, and I mean, there's so many examples of this, and, and that's just part of the sport. That And, and I think it, I mean, you know, it, what it eventually does is generate debate over people who, between people who follow the sport over years. I mean, we can still call up Paulie Malignaggi and have him yell at us <laughs> about why Algeria won that fight 
and 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 call us stupid for thinking that Provodnikov did you know a lot more of, of value in it you know and and those I mean you know I mean go back to you know what what do you want to go Marvin Hagler Sugar Ray Leonard you know I mean these are those things uh, when it happened when they happen in big fights they last kind of forever in the sport so I don't think it's really a bad thing it, I guess it it can hurt in the moment it frustrates fans there's no what's the real answer I mean I guess you could encourage judges you could try and create a movement in judging. Uh, and I don't know where this would start. If it would start with the sanctioning bodies, or oh, there's really trustworthy, great folks who really care about the sport, um, <laughs> to, to to give more even rounds, or to give you know to not be afraid to give a 10-8 round when when there's no knockdown, such as in the ten, ninth round. You know, even okay, Horn. I mean, you're, you saying even rounds to ten ten more often when it's close is probably a better idea than giving more 10-8 rounds when it's not a lot of damage, right? Yes, I would say yeah. Well, all of, all of that is. You know, I, I think I don't know if it actually ends. It gives judges more tools to work with, or more ways to sort of look at the fight. I don't know if it eventually. I don't know if that would actually make fights. You know, make make scorecards more um, more understandable, or more, or or always reflect what we think, who we think got the better of the action. I mean, there's just so much room for gray areas in boxing, and you know, it's just like, it's, everything is subjective. Did that punch land? I mean, unless, you know, it's not, that is not actually a subjective evaluation, but you can't always see it. So it becomes subjective. Um, and, and that's, and that's the easy part to evaluate. Then the, you know, things, I mean, do you, do we expect all these judges to really care about ring generalship or think about it? I hope they do, but some of them probably don't. I mean, we, these are in some judges. I hope most judges take it extremely seriously. These are also just patronage jobs that people hand out to like their buddies through the state commissions. Is like that a Gil Van who the heck knows where these people right come from. Um, you know, they just, they just stay there and, and keep doing it. And some do better than others. I think it's also, you know, one of, you know, Bob Arum and top rank and Manny Pacquiao had to get sort of creative to, to find an opponent and a venue where they could come get the right, you know, can get the money that they wanted out of this fight. And they had to do some weird venue shopping. They had to go all the way to Brisbane, Australia for this to, for, for, to, to kind of get the money that they were no longer making through U.S. pay-per-view anymore. Um, the risk that they put themselves out there for is you're going to a weird venue. It's like when you take fights to D.C. and the man with the black hat is there <laughs> and they haven't hosted a big fight in a long time. Amir Khan might lose that fight in Lamont Peterson's backyard. Um, Can you know, I stop we, you there and ask you one yeah. my under underlining question? You mentioned sort of they took that chance. Aaron and Pacquiao took the chance by setting up what was sort of an obvious money grab. So there's a sort of an underlying cosmic theory that did the boxing gods get Manny and Aaron back here for taking the easy payday and soft opponent? It's like Pacquiao tried to operate the easy way, right? He made a G today. He made a few Gs, but he tried to make it in a sleazy way, right? You know, it, it, I mean, that's the way it is. Like, do, do you think there's any sort of like, all right, you pushed too far on this one? Like, the, the same reason when I went to see Garcia Salka in 2014 ringside at Barclays, there was a part of me that was like, something bad's going to happen here. Salka's going to pull the upset just to get them back, and them meaning Showtime, Al Heyman, for trying something like this. Uh, yes. I, I mean, I don't, I don't think it, I don't, I never thought of it as like a real, like, uh, I, I never thought of them making this fight against Jeff Horn, even though it looked like a really bad or not a, a like a, like a mismatch on paper. Um, I never thought of it as some sort of crime against the sport of boxing. I mean, I, I, I honestly don't think that, uh, Manny Pacquiao owes the sport of boxing anything at this there point. There we go. Um, the Pucky you know, protector for life right here. Uh, look, uh, I, I, any fighter who's accomplished as much as he has, 
you know, I mean, it, it does not, I, I just don't, I don't see it. Like, you know, he's, he's 38 years old. Uh, he basically, he, the way he's been operating in recent years sort of makes it clear that he is no longer in the, I am going to take on all comers, like, and be a major part of the, the, the narrative of, of who's the best in the sport uh type fighter and that is totally normal for a fighter of his age of his stature doing looking for sort of like victory you know like like big money big money fights while he's still it can 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 still do it the same way Cotto is done, uh, the same way Juan Manuel Marquez sort of what seems like he would like to do. Um, Tim Bradley, if he ever fights again, is probably in that category now. That's sort of that. It all makes sense. Um, it the, the 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 weird thing was that until this weekend, Manny still appeared to be fighting on a world class level, true. and so you you still wanted to see him in that in in that caliber of fight, but. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't think that he owed that to anyone. So I, I don't know if it's a boxing gods right. thing. It's more just like you go, you go into someone's backyard and you and you have a close fight. You know, you might they, you know, you might get a crappy decision, and that's what happens. That's why you knock fools out? One more thing, CompuBox is under fire from this. People sort of, Paulie Malnagi going at CompuBox. They've been battling on Twitter. I love CompuBox. I love the Bob Canobio and Sons family business. They've they've really always. I mean, 30-something years, they've always stood up to all the credibility tests. They're firing back at people on Twitter, you know, angrily. I've been loving sort of the... The CompuBox clapback. They're, they're coming at people right now. I mean, it's been fantastic. My question, though, from my eyesight watching it once, and I didn't watch the replay yet of Pacquiao Horn, I didn't feel like Pacquiao landed double the shots. That When I saw that stat, that blew me away. There are other fights in recent years where that just sort of happens. What you thought you saw, and then you see the CompuBox numbers, and you're like, wow, 100 punch disparity I didn't guess that I didn't think that is there any chance Rafe and this is not against our friends at CompuBox that just human error that it's impossible to accurately track this that there are guys the punch operators at CompuBox who are watching a fight in real time with buttons in front of them and they're basically hitting miss or or punch landed is there any chance that they can't even sitting ringside accurately tell if Horn throws a shot and part of the glove hits Pacquiao's face. The other part of the glove hits Pacquiao's guard. I don't know. Do they count that as a punch landed? I don't know. Is there any form of human error in this? Like, we know CompuBox numbers are not gospel. They say it themselves on the website. It's an enhancement tool to help you frame basically an argument, right? It helps you frame an angle in the fight. Is there any chance that, in general, it's kind of impossible to get it right and perfect? Of, of course it's impossible to get that right. I mean, you know, and I think that the guys who run CompuBox do it about as well as anyone possibly could if you're, you know, if you're basically sitting there with a clicker being like hit, miss, hit, miss, hit, miss, hit, miss, you know, power jab, power jab. Like, like you're, you're just sitting there watching and pressing buttons and they practice and they get as good as they possibly can to, 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 to you know, to make it credible and I think that in it is credible, but we all know that it just doesn't tell the entire story of a fight. I mean, just the the breakdown between jab and power doesn't it, it alone is so vague that it doesn't really help. Like the the throwing all punches besides jabs into one category, like you know, is 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 alone misleading because it's oh it's a power shot well True. if you're not throwing it hard is and is it a power shot um so i mean there's a it's not it's not perfect and like you said they fully admit that it's not perfect i think that what it does do is gives you a it usually gives you a a decent picture of of how uh, of you know of how a fight went now not always and the, and you don't want to rely it, rely on it solely but 
um, the accuracy numbers usually are 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 a little are helpful. Tell you who's sort of you know more dialed in, who's landing the better shots. Um, the raw thrown and landed numbers, you know, like like because because they don't really take into account who's you know throwing the harder shots, who's the heavier puncher, who's landing cleaner. That can can lead you astray a little bit. Um, and yeah, in this one, I didn't think, I, I, I guess I was surprised at how little they had horn landing. I thought he, I mean, it seemed like he was able to find Pacquiao, you know, uh, a few times in each round, he would land a couple clean looking shots. Um, and besides just being busy the whole time. Um, so maybe, you know, I didn't, I didn't think that maybe they, oh, they, that they overestimated how well Manny was doing. Maybe they, they, maybe, maybe for some reason it, they didn't see horn landing, as much as as we did, but I certainly wasn't sitting there counting, clicking away. Um, I, I think CompuBox is fine. Paulie Paulie doesn't like CompuBox because people he, he it drives him crazy when people over rely on it, when people cite it as a reason that one guy won a fight or another. Um, and Paulie is just excitable. We know that. Like when whenever you disagree with him. You know he's gonna come at you. He's just, that's just you know. That's, I that's love how though CompuBox coming at him on Twitter, basically saying. You crapped on CompuBox numbers when you when you won against uh, Cano in the close fight. People thought you lost, yeah. but then you used our numbers to support why you thought you beat Juan Diaz the first time. But great stuff. Rafe Pacquiao Horn and the books. We're probably going to see a rematch. It'll probably be big money. If that rematch can end up on ESPN again, that's where I think it's great for the sport, right? Like, like we'll see where that ends up going. But that's Pack Horn. Before we throw it over to Tom Loeffler to talk the making of Triple G, one more reminder to check out the other great content this week on the In This Corner podcast. The MMA edition returns previewing Saturday's UFC 213 card with the great Brett Okamoto of ESPN. Yes, my old partner from the Five Rounds podcast days. And be sure to check out our pro wrestling edition, not just breaking down the week that was in WWE ahead of Sunday's Great Balls of Fire pay-per-view, not just looking back at the spectacle that that was New Japan Pro Wrestling's USA invasion in Long Beach. We have a very special big-name guest that you won't want to miss. But for now, let's talk to that international man of mystery himself, Tom Loeffler. Rafe, you ready for this? I am. I was born ready. I was born ready. Yeah, oh, let's shoot. hear from no, Tom. Enjoy. In this corner is pleased to welcome in K- K2 Promotions' Tom Loeffler, Really the mastermind here behind Gennady Golovkin's rise in the United States. September 16th, the biggest fight of the year on the boxing calendar, of course, will be Golovkin against Canelo Alvarez in a pay-per-view. Tom, really excited to to sort of talk with you about this five-year journey of getting Gennady this point. Thanks so much for joining us. How are you on this early Monday morning on the left coast? <laughs> no, I'm great. Uh, we just had a whirlwind uh promotional tour last week, um, you know, ever since we announced the fight. <clears throat> you know, kind of WWE style on, <laughs> on May 6th. It's, uh, it's been a tremendous response from, from the fans, from the media. And so we couldn't be more excited. Uh, now, you know, this is the, this is the fight, you know, as you alluded to, uh, it's been five years since uh, Gennady made his uh, debut here in the U.S. on an HBO. And this is really what all the knockouts, all the hard work, all the promotions, what they were all about is uh, reaching this fight, and this is this is the biggest fight in the sport of boxing right now. Well, that five-year build for Gennady also included essentially a two-year build, if you will, for this specific Canelo fight. And as boxing journalists, as boxing fans, we almost become 
conditioned to expect the worst, right? Like we endured five and a half years <laughs> to get to Mayweather Pacquiao. I'm sure yeah. you had your own moments during the build until you finally saw Canelo's, you know, John Hancock on that on that line. How much of a relief was it that you finally got here knowing the, the tricks of the trade in this business? Well, I'll tell you, Brian, it uh, really, even after uh, we signed uh, the terms, Gennady still didn't believe <laughs> it was going to happen. He was reluctant to going up to Vegas. I think when he finally realized <clears throat> the fight was on was when, when he walked in the ring, looked across the ring from Canelo. Max Kellerman was there interviewing both guys, and then he finally sunk in, okay, this fight's uh, actually going to happen uh, September 16th. So, um, like you said, it, sometimes uh, it takes a long time to make these fights. It's all relative. This one was just over, uh, you know, just about a year and a half. Um, Gennady naturally would have liked to have uh, taken the fight last year uh, when it was ordered by the WBC. But, uh, you know, right now uh, he's, you know, he had the fight in England with Brooke and then he had the fight with Danny Jacobs and Canelo had the masterful performance against uh, Chavez Jr. So I think it's a bigger and a bigger event right now for uh, September of, uh, of this year. Uh, T Tom, you mentioned the sort of the WWE style announcement of uh, of uh, Canelo Triple G, and I'm curious, you know, did did that did you know it was it was new for boxing and, and maybe it was effective in in you know getting building some buzz for the fight, but did it feel uh, a little over the top at the time? Was there some part of you being like, I can't believe we're doing this, or were you just so happy that you know finally you were going to get this moment to to make the fight official? Uh, uh, when when you were doing that back during the Canelo Chavez fight, I tell you, Rafe, uh, we were happy. Uh, <laughs> however, it was going to get announced, we were happy right. either way. We just figured we could capitalize on all the media that was going to be up there for Canelo in Las Vegas, um, and it, it just uh, you know naturally, <clears throat> you know everything was predicated. We really didn't sign the fight until just a couple days before that fight, so everything was really kind of rushed uh, of trying to put that. Uh, Put that uh, entrance together, but um, you know Gennady had to to beat uh, Danny Jacobs, which was his mandatory. You know that went, that was the first time he went 12 rounds uh, in his career, and and actually Canelo had to beat uh, Chavez Jr. But with those two those two uh, wins, that's uh, when it just opened the door for uh, for that for that entrance. And I think uh, you know a lot of fans said that was the most exciting point of that night was uh, Gennady <laughs> walking into the. Which is sort of the the good and bad thing to say about that night. <laughs> yeah. Tom, for, for your perspective, what sort of was the ultimate holdup here, right? Because people sort of look at it as Oscar was biding time to get more paydays out of Canelo. Some people will say waiting this long may actually give you a bigger pay-per-view buy total in the end because of the storyline it sort of told along the way. What did you sort of look at as the reasoning in the long run? You know, Brian, it wasn't really uh, one thing that was holding up uh, the negotiations. I wouldn't say we were ever at a point where you know, we couldn't agree on a particular issue. And then I would say, uh, well, it doesn't look like it's going to happen. You know, I w I've been in, you know, since w when Canelo vacated the title, there really wasn't any pressure for him to fight Triple G at that point. You know, all the pressure came from the mandatory position that Gennady had with the WBC. And uh, once he vacated, then, you know, he could have kept fighting a junior welterweight. He could have, I mean, a junior middleweight. He could have, uh, you know, really, uh, you know, when he can put 50,000 people in Cowboy Stadium uh, against Liam Smith, that, that kind of shows you, you you can kind of pick and choose whoever you want. So, um, you know, but I, I think uh, after the Chavez fight, they realized uh, this is this is really the 
the the biggest uh, event in in boxing. It certainly is going to be Canelo's biggest payday um, of his career, and uh, also uh, you know with, with Gennady uh, as well. So I think uh, you know Oscar was looking at, at at the timing was right. 2017. He he said even last year when um, when Canelo didn't take the fight last year, he said we'll do it in uh, September 2017, and and he stuck to his word and. And I think he wanted to build Canelo's brand. And, and whenever you can break a million pay-per-view buys, you know, in today's climate, which he did with uh, Chavez, I think, you know, that the time is, is right, you know, for uh, for the fight now in September. Uh, Tom, you mentioned that the time is right. Um, do you, did, is there also a sense that perhaps, you know, uh, Oscar, Canelo, Golden Boy uh, also weren't didn't mind seeing, uh, you know, Triple, Triple G get a little bit older over the past year and a half. You know, he's 30, he just turned 35 in April. And uh, combine, combining that with the fact that, you know, fighting the, the fight with Danny Jacobs went 12 rounds, uh, snap, uh, you know, 22 fight. Was it 22 or 23? Uh, 23. 23 fight <laughs> knockout streak. Um, you know, did, did, did that uh, help at least the perception that, that perhaps, you know, uh, Gennady could be aging or that he, you know, he had, a, he, you know, by not knocking out Jacobs, he had more trouble with him and it was a close fight. Did that help make the fight? You know, it, uh, it certainly didn't hurt <laughs> that way. You know, I think it was just a combination of everything. You know, I'm sure somewhere in the back of their minds, they figured, uh, Canelo, uh, getting a year older in his, in his prime, uh, and physically stronger. You, you saw how, how good he looked and, and how mm-hmm. muscular he looked against, uh, against Chavez. Um, he actually fought at, you know, over 160 for that fight. So, you know, theoretically he's got to lose weight to come down and fight triple G now at, uh, at 160. But, um, you know, and also the, uh, Danny Jacobs fight, even if you go back to Kell Brook, um, yeah. you know, all those, uh, you know, arguably could be, you know, maybe give them a little bit more confidence. Now's the right time. But, um, you know, with Brooke, uh, Gennady was very frustrated. Um, that's when, uh, you know, we couldn't make the Canelo fight. Then we reached out to Saunders to unify over in the UK, and uh, and we couldn't make that deal. Then we reached out. And then uh, Eddie Hearn called me about making the the Eubank Junior fight, and and that uh, he couldn't close that deal. And that's how the Kell Brook fight came up. Right. So Gennady was very frustrated. None of the best middleweights would fight him, and I think he uh, he certainly didn't overlook Kell by any stretch because Kell is a, a terrific uh, terrific champion. Um, but I think he was just a little more sloppy in that uh that fight than uh than he normally would have been you saw like with lemieux how sharp he was with his jab mm-hmm. and and very cautious against a big puncher and then with uh with danny he has got a lot of respect for uh for danny jacobs and um uh, the fact that he went 12 rounds uh, i think uh maybe all that made people think you know maybe he isn't superman maybe uh if if we get in the ring with him we have a chance to actually win the fight and uh I think all those things uh, coming together, in addition to the financial part, um, you know, made it uh, made it come together now for September. Tom, were you, actually, go ahead. so go I was ahead, just going to say, in that moment of, of hearing the scorecards, and, and for any, you know, there's a narrative, of course, oh, Gennady might be human now, look what he did, but we can't understate how focused, how determined Danny Jacobs was, how much he really was, you know, the perfect opponent to push Gennady in the, in the kind of fight you guys had wanted. But a lot of people thought this could have been a draw, could have gone either way. How nervous were you knowing that what's at stake financially when those when that decision was read? You know, it wasn't uh, it was a it was a strange feeling for me since uh, ever, since I started working with Gennady, it, it never went to the scorecard. So it was never that question about oh, maybe we'll get a bad decision 
maybe one of the judges is, is off or, you know, <laughs> even worse if two of them are off and then, and then you get a bad decision. I mean, we saw what happened with Chocotito. It was in a tremendous fight, probably one of the leading candidates for fight of the year uh, on the co-feature when he had that uh, tough fight against, uh, against uh, Sisraket uh, Rungvisai. Um, you know, most people thought that uh, even though Chocotito got knocked down in the first round, you know, he came back, uh, kind of dominated the, uh, the end of the fight and, uh, you know, landed a lot more punches. And you saw he lost out by, uh, uh, by a razor-thin margin. Uh, two judges had him losing by one point, and uh, one judge had it a draw. So, um, you know, after the co-feature and then, you know, seeing uh, how it went 12 rounds with Gennady, it, uh, you know, it didn't really occur to me that uh, it was going to be that close, um, you know, with the decision and everything. I thought, you know, with the knockdown and then just the way he, you know, kept coming forward with Danny, um, it wouldn't be, uh, you know, it wouldn't be a question. But, you know, you never know when you leave it in the hands of judges, um, you, you, your, your future is uh, uncertain. And uh, and I think, um, you know, you, you really can't take anything away from Danny because he really rose to the occasion. You know, Gennady was on such a such a tear with the with a knockout streak and you know being in Madison Square Garden and on, on the biggest uh, stage of boxing on on HBO pay-per-view you know Danny you got to give him a lot of credit he rose to the occasion he was physically you could tell he was you know much bigger than Gennady he was you know heavier that night and, and uh, he he put on a great performance so anyone that uh, you know criticizes Gennady's performance that really diminishes what uh, what Danny did because uh, you know you got to give him a lot of credit for rising the occasion Absolutely, Tom. Uh, you know, you mentioned, you know, that, that that was the first time in your experience working with Gennady that, you know, he had gone, you know, not knocked out an opponent. And I just wanted to sort of, you know, reflect back on sort of the, that this period of time as his star has risen here in the States, starting with that, you know, September 2012 uh, Zegor's Proxa fight in Turning Stone, away upstate in New York, all the way to now. And I mean, I guess the last there were moments in the last couple of years where where he, he I'm sure he he said he felt frustrated about not being able to get the best middleweights in the room. It seemed like Canelo was sort of stalling a little bit to make this fight. Um, but all all things considered, to take a fighter from uh you know from what was you know people were complaining was the the lowest rated HBO uh uh you know uh, you know main event of the year back in 2012 to one of the biggest stars in the sport, in the biggest fight in, in boxing. I mean, it's hard to script that much better. Are there a few moments along the way that, that really stick out to you as either pivotal or um, or just ones that are special to you? You know, you can look at it two ways. Um, you know, one is uh, I, I don't know anyone that has risen, you know, that quickly. Um, you know, when, when we had that fight, we were ba basically begging HBO. I mean, really, for that matter, uh, both HBO and Showtime. You know, I was begging them. You know, here we have an undefeated WBA middleweight champion. He'll fight anybody. He doesn't need a lot of money. He just wants the exposure. He wants to fight over here in the states. If you remember back then, you know, Sergio Martinez was clearly, you know, considered the best middleweight champion. Uh, Felix Sturm back then, you know, Gennady was the mandatory for Sturm for for two years, and uh, couldn't get that couldn't get that fight. So, you know, he was frustrated that he couldn't get the big guys uh, in the ring. So he just wanted to to put his displays. Uh, his skills on display, and uh, luckily we got that slot. A lot of people don't remember, but he was supposed to fight actually uh, Pirog uh, at that time. Oh, yeah. He, the, that's, that slot originally was Daniel Deal versus uh, Pirog. It was supposed to be a unification fight. I think Pirog was the WBO champion, and Deal at the time was the IBF champion. 
and uh, Giel got a better offer to fight Sturm in Germany. That's what allowed Sturm one additional <laughs> one additional title title fight without having to fight Gennady, and that's what opened up the slot because nobody wanted to fight Pirog um, uh, at that point. So if you remember, Pirog uh, knocked out uh, actually Danny Jacobs at that time was a big puncher, and you know I, I told HBO there's no problem. Uh, Triple G will fight Pirog, and then Pirog wound up getting injured, and then uh, that's how we we uh, uh, Artie Palulu came up with uh, the European champion uh, uh, Proxa, which uh, you know a lot of fighters wouldn't have done that. Uh, you go from a huge right-handed puncher like Pirog to a southpaw mover and boxer like uh, Proxa, and it totally changes your sparring, your whole training. And and Abel was just so confident in Gennady's skills with his amateur pedigree, seeing every different type of style that he didn't care. He didn't care who they put in the ring with him. And, you know, that, that was a step-by-step process. And actually, that was a huge event for Gennady, you know, getting on HBO, you know, considered the, you know, in his mind, the biggest uh, platform uh, for boxing. And then, you know, going along the way, you know, first time fighting at the Garden, uh, uh, if you remember against Gabe Rosado, you mm-hmm. know, that was, that was a scary night against Gabe Rosado, if we kind of chronicle back, because uh, he, he, he got sick. sick on the, yeah, he got sick on the plane flying from L.A. to New York. And um, uh, Thursday night, he couldn't breathe. He called his manager of the room. It was like 2 o'clock in the morning and said, you know, I can't breathe. And uh, so you know, they were doing all kinds of like aromatherapy and tea and, you know, just everything they could to try to clear his passageway. He even weighed in. You know, we, we told him, you just weigh in, see if you get better by Saturday. And then uh, Saturday morning, he told Abel, he said, you know what, I feel better. I can fight, and then uh, we went through with it. And but that was a that was a scary moment. But uh, you know, fighting at the Garden for the first time was great. Uh, headlining the Garden at the at the big room against uh, Daniel Giel, that was uh, that was a milestone for him. Uh, one of the biggest events, which uh, you know, which took me by surprise. I knew Gennady would be a star just with his his style in the ring, his knockout power. Though that's what the fans want to see is they just want to see exciting fights. It was why Mike Tyson was so popular. He was knocking everybody out. And uh, but when you combine that with his charm and his personality outside the ring, his respect for the sport, his respect for his opponents, it just makes him a a, a likable, <laughs> a <laughs> likable destroying machine, I guess is the best way to put it. And uh, and when when we brought him out here to to the StubHub, the first time he fought in L.A., you know, I'm based in L.A. I grew up here. You know, Abel's based out here in in, in the L.A. area. Um, you know, he's been training out here and, and has been living in LA. But when we brought him to StubHub and, and he fought uh, Mark Antonio Rubio, um, you know, who, who's a very solid uh, Mexican uh, fighter, uh, but the response we got from the Mexican fans it just was overwhelming. I mean, we broke the attendance record uh, at the StubHub. You had uh, you know so many great names fighting there. You know, Andre Ward fought there, Arthur Abraham fought there, Marquez fought there. Um, you know, so many, so many great fighters. And uh, for Gennady to come the first time he's fought in L.A., shatter the record, we sold out. The capacity, I think, was 8,000. We added, you know, additional standing room only tickets. We added bleachers. I mean, we really maxed out the capacity of StubHub. And that's what really opened my eyes to, you know, how popular he was, not only in New York, but, you know, by Coastal, where that was our plan, is to build him up as a ticket seller, not taking him to the small casinos, and going the easy route, you know, where you get, uh, you know, the VIP guests and things like that. It was really going out and marketing him uh, and, frankly, him marketing himself to the fans. And uh, so that was a huge, 
that was a huge step. And then naturally uh, going to England and selling out the O2 arena over there in London. That was literally, I think, 11 minutes is what Eddie Hearn said. And so that, that those were some of the milestones along the way. Naturally, you know, had we gotten the Sturm fight, had we gotten Sergio Martinez, or had we gotten Chavez Jr. when I was talking to Bob when he was still with top rank, I think that would have uh, sped up his uh, his ascension. I mean, he really did it the hard way. He kind of did it like Marvin Hagler. When nobody wanted to fight for Hagler, he just kept fighting guys, kept beating them until, you know, he got in a bad position. And that's what, you know, thankfully with the support of HBO, they said, look, if we can't get the big names to fight him, we're just going to keep putting on Triple G, you know, and just put him in against the best guys who agree to fight him. And, uh, and that's how that's how it all transpired. I think it was smart that you meant you mentioned a lot of things in there that you kept him busy. That was one thing you kept him in front of people's faces consistently that it became it doesn't matter who he's fighting. We want to see this guy who has some of those elements. You said that the Tyson feeling the sort of the dichotomy of the baby faced assassin where you feel like this guy could be your little brother yet. He's going out there and destroying people. So I'd, I'd love to hear sort of. The origin, because 2012, like you mentioned, that that Proska fight, Rafe was in the crowd at the Turning Stone with his dad. One, for, of, the, one of the few. One of the few. <laughs> one of the few. That was the announcement for, you know, most boxing fans, although you had heard rumblings from the hardcores of, hey, you got to watch this grainy internet footage yeah. of this guy. But when did yeah. it, when was your first knowledge of this name and sort of, how did you form that vision? Because you had that vision in 2012 and 2013, that vision that he could one day have the, the Jordan brand sponsorship, that he could one day headline a pay-per-view. And, of course, back then, you know, for our guys like us, it's, okay, let's wait and see. Let's see what you can do here. Talk to us about the very beginning. Well, I, I had heard about uh, Golovkin. Uh, you know, he, he had signed with the same uh, promoter in Germany that the Klitschko brothers were with originally when they first uh, – when they first turned professional. And so, you know, no, being familiar with the boxing scene in Germany, um, you know, I, I had heard, you know, this is a guy just knocking everybody out, you know, big power. But the problem he had with, uh, with Universum at the time was they had Felix Sturm, they had uh, Sebastian Zibik, they had, you know, some, some uh, uh, great champions, but they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't put Triple G in against them. That's why he got frustrated. And that's why when the contract expired, he was able to get out of it, and you know, when when uh, his managers approached me, uh, they saw you know the the success we had with uh, the Klitschko's over here in the U.S. back then, and uh, when they approached me, they said, "Look, you know, all the great middleweights are fighting in the states, and we want uh, Gennady, you know, to be fighting there." He was already training. A lot of people don't realize that he was actually training with Abel uh, long before I started working with them. So he was already over here training, and so it just made sense that he's over here training and. You know, you got the big names over here that to, to fight here. So, um, you know, and then just opening the doors. I knew with the global brands that uh, because of his likability outside the ring, because he's such a great ambassador, not only for the sport of boxing, but for, you know, people's brands, for their companies, that uh, I thought it would open up uh, a lot of doors. And I think, you know, I, I would argue to say he's one of the, the, the boxers, you know, in the history of sport that has – you know, really high level global brands. You know, he's, we just signed a deal with uh, Hugh Blow. He's the first uh, boxer um, that's actually a brand ambassador for Hugh Blow. Um, they made his own uh, Triple G Lion watch. Nice. Uh, and that's a, wow. That, that's a very big deal. Hey, that take that, Floyd. It. Right, right, Tom? Take that, Floyd. <laughs> <laughs> Floyd Floyd has Hugh Blow watches, but uh, they, he, they, he don't may not be the they don't have the Mayweather edition. <laughs> but, um, uh, and then there was Chivas. Uh, he just signed a deal with them. He's also their first uh, brand ambassador for 
for the sport of boxing, um, naturally Jordan brand, you know, he's one of two, uh, boxers, uh, naturally Andre Ward is with, uh, Jordan. He's been with them for a long time. And when we signed the deal with Jordan, I think, uh, or maybe about three years ago, uh, with them. And then, uh, you know, and, and Gennady doesn't really fit into the, your, your typical, uh, what you, what you picture as a Jordan athlete, you know, I mean, they they do a lot of NBA, a lot of football, a lot of, a lot of baseball. And then again, here's a kid from uh, Kazakhstan coming in and, it's just his personality is so, so magnetic. Um, you know, the best selling point um, of trying to close a deal with a sponsor, if they're not familiar with boxing or if, if they don't really know who Gennady is, you know, you invite them to a fight and then, you know, they see the crowd chanting a triple G in front of a sold out arena. And then <laughs> it's a pretty <laughs> easy sell for, uh, for someone to get involved with them. Um, also, Bijan, you know, the, the world famous uh, boutique on Rodeo Drive, uh, you know, they have presidents, heads of state coming there buying their their clothes and their, and their suits and uh i don't know if you saw the uh that yellow right. jacket that he wore at the espies that one time uh on the red carpet when he was standing together with ronda rousey or the red jacket that he just wore at the uh, la media event i mean you know Bijan, um he's the only one that uh, actually sponsors or Gennady's the only one that uh, he sponsors and so you know we're, we're lucky that um you know we've been able to position him that way he did the commercial for apple watch you know which which was very uh <laughs> that, that that turned a lot of heads. Yeah, these these um, were huge. Did you see that in his personality from from the jump the first time? Did you see that that he was capable of this? Like you said, a kid from Kazakhstan. Did did you kind of have this vision right from the get go? I really did. Um, you know, his in the beginning, his his English was was pretty limited. Um, you know, people still say you know he's not fluent, but uh, I mean, if English is your fourth language, you know, I don't know how much more fluent <laughs> he's got to get. <laughs> so. Um, you know, I, I really saw the whole package, um, especially, you know, the fans can tell what the fans can tell when when you got a guy that wants to fight anyone that will get in the ring with them, you know, and, and uh, you know, not strategically. OK, we got to sidestep this guy. We're going go in this direction, whatever. I mean, he was literally trying to, to fight the best guys because he wanted to show that the only way he could show he's the best middleweight and, and, and one of the best boxers in the sport is to fight the best competition. And, uh, you know, going to. Uh, to Monte Carlo fighting Martin Murray. Um, you know, Martin Murray at the time was, you know, his only losses was to Sergio Martinez, where he fought, if you remember, he fought him in Argentina and he dropped him officially once, but uh, once, <laughs> the second yeah. knockdown wasn't wasn't called. And then he had a very controversial loss to Felix Sturm. So Martin Murray was one of those guys who, who you don't really pick at the top of your list to, to do a voluntary defense. And Martin couldn't get a visa to come in the United States. So we wound up fighting him and, and Monte Carlos. So we're actually going out of our way to fight the best guys, even if it wasn't over here in the United States. And um, I think that's just what has developed his international appeal. I mean, a lot of people don't realize his grandfather is born in Korea. And so his fights, when they're shown in Korea, he gets very high ratings over there now because, you know, they, they, they sense the connection to, um, to um, the country of Korea and, and, uh, you know, he's really developed into an international, not just over here in the States, but an international uh, boxing star. And that's, uh, you know, that's really what the vision was about from the beginning. And uh, you mentioned here at the States, uh, at least here in the States, a lot of that, the sort of the cult of, of Gennady Golovkin has been, yes, about, you know, his performance in the ring and, and the knockout streak, uh, but also, um, you know, sort of the, the sort of the post-fight interviews they, they turned into the catchphrases you know i mean from you know from good boy to you know big drama show to you know just the way he says max when he talks to max kellerman yeah. i mean uh 
it, do you, how much of that, uh, I mean, did it, did it sort of begin naturally and become a little bit more of an act? Uh, how, what's sort of the, 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 the ratio of, you know, uh, real to, to acting there. And also, uh, do you have a favorite catchphrase of Gennady's? You know, I'll tell you, right, the, uh, you know, that's really not scripted. Uh, people mm. say, well, you know, we feed him lines or, you know, whatever it is. But, uh, you know, Gennady's a very smart person, even though his English isn't perfect. He's a very smart guy. And, and, uh, you know, when you think that he thinks in terms of Russian, which is his native language. And so after, uh, you know, Rosado, uh, he had respect for Gabe Rosado because, again, that was at the time when guys weren't uh, weren't fighting him. Gabe actually was the mandatory. Yeah, he moved up from 154. I mean, it, it was kind of hard to imagine he was making 154 because he was <laughs> towering over over Gennady when they fought. But, you know, the, the expression in Russian, uh, you know, that he's a good boy means like he's like a good sport or he was very competitive, you know, that type of thing. And then, uh, you know, big drama show, that's just like in his mind that he just figures like he wants to put on a show for the fans and he, he you know, relates that to drama and uh, like dramatic, you know, like a theater or something like that. And, and that's what Abel really catch, uh, coaches him is to, you know, put the fans are paying money to buy a ticket to watch a pay-per-view and you got to put on an entertaining fight. So he always ingrains that in Gennady. And then also, you know, one thing that really took me by surprise, I mean, we've always said, that, you know, that Abel has uh, trained Gennady after the style of uh, Cesar Chavez uh, a Sr., mm-hmm. you know, uh, who they we, we all have a lot of respect for, for Julio uh, Sr. And, um, and uh, you know, the, just the aggressive style, the left hooks to the body, uh, constant pressure, cutting off the ring. And that's really what's transformed Gennady's, you know, kind of Soviet, uh, amateur style into this killer, you know, Mexican style that's, uh, you know, produced that 23 knockout streak. And so after the Daniel Gill fight and Max was uh, interviewing him and, and uh, Max said, well, how would you describe your style? And he said, well, you know, I fight the Mexican style. <laughs> and then, then, and then the next fight is when we came to, uh, to LA and fought Rubio. And we, we had no idea who the opponent was going to be at that time, but uh, it just really fit you know, um, that, that really garnished him a lot of, uh, a lot of Mexican fans. Yeah. I mean, you had t-shirts, Mexicans for Golovkins. I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, you had, it was sort of a natural segue from a marketing sense, Tom, in a lot of ways, a fighter's background, their childhood, the things they endured, obviously shape who they are in the ring as a fighter. I mean, I think no one would, would, uh, you know, say anything negative to the idea that if Manny Pacquiao wasn't selling cigarettes and donuts on the street to, in order to eat as a youth, he may not have been able to fight with that type of passion as a professional, being willing to sure. take those chances. Gennady's backstory in Kazakhstan growing up, it's one thing we still don't know a lot about. I know, you know, losing his two brothers who were in the military has always sort of been a touchy subject, but what can you tell us about sort of Gennady's backstory that may have helped shape who he is today? You know, he, he grew up in, in a pretty rough neighborhood. It was a blue-collar neighborhood. His father was... Uh... Uh, working in the coal mine uh, there in uh, Karagandar, that's the name of the city. And there was like this uh, kind of uh, small section of Karagandar called uh, Microduk that, uh, you know, is kind of, I don't know how to, uh, you know, maybe like uh, uh, like South Central in L.A. or, or um, you know, it just was a pretty rough neighborhood. So if you're on, you know, walking to school or, or you know, walking around after school, whatever it is, you're, you're <laughs> you have a tendency to, to get into a fight over there. And so right. he had to protect himself, you know, really a lot. And, and, uh, his brother, the oldest brother, um, Deem, he's the one that brought him to the boxing gym. Uh, I think it was at age eight when he started. And then, uh, you know, he just kept fighting bigger guys 
and the coach, you know, just kept putting him in, like fighting every week. Um, and so he really developed his skills at a young age. But uh, again, you know, what you alluded to with Manny, I mean, he came from a very humble background and, um, you know, saw that, especially in the, in the Soviet Union era, that, uh, you know, the athletes, uh, the successful amateur athletes really rose to prominence uh, in their, in their countries. And that was one way, you know, when he was winning the world championships and the amateurs and won a silver medal in the Olympics, um, that was his way to kind of rise above, um, you know, where a lot of the, a lot of the guys were in his neighborhood. And, and he kind of, uh, you know, ever since he, tur he turned pro, he's literally the most successful professional athlete, uh, in the history of, uh, of Kazakhstan. So, you know, it, it really, it's, um, kind of amazing when you when you put it in per perspective they just named a, a a building for him uh over there in uh, in his city and and there was like thousands of people that came out for the naming ceremony he was also the um the world ambassador that's one that i forgot world ambassador for the world expo um uh, that's taking place in kazakhstan right now it's uh, the biggest event in, in the history of the oh. country. It's a 25-year-old well, country. So That's what I was going to yeah, ask really. you about his level of fame because if you're looking at like a, a comparison, Pacquiao is almost, you know, rock star, politician, star athlete. You know, he's like Elvis and everybody else mixed together. Where do you get that sense of, of how Gennady's native people accept him in that regard? He's really uh, – you can <laughs> – that's a great comparison. He's like Elvis walking down the street. If, if people – see him on the sidewalk, just walking down the sidewalk, though, the girls will start screaming. And uh, it's really, uh, you know, it's it's kind of like a, uh, he's their national hero over there. He's the one that's, you know, arguably say he put Kazakhstan on the map over here in the U.S. Uh, as far as people associating Kazakhstan. Oh, OK, that's Triple G, you know, and and um, yeah, move over Borat. Right. You got that out of the way. <laughs> he he kind of changed the notion of Borat. <laughs> Yeah, from from the people from Kazakhstan. So yeah, it's a big deal, and they and they recognize that. And you know, he's close. He's friends with the the president of Kazakhstan. When uh, we were in Washington D.C., we we met with the president, and uh, you know, they they all realize, all the politicians realize that uh, you know he's really their best ambassador internationally for the country of uh, of Kazakhstan, and he always represents you know Kazakhstan in the ring when he brings the the flag with him, and and. Uh, you know, he lives in L.A. His son goes to school here in uh, in L.A. and and uh, but he, you know, he's he's proud of his uh, heritage from Kazakhstan. Sure. And, and Tom, this will be obviously Gennady's biggest moment. Everything you've worked for, September sixteenth, Canelo Alvarez. But we obviously have to ask you about sort of the the possible damper of, of Floyd Mayweather getting back in the ring against uh, Conor McGregor in this carnival fight three weeks before this fight. I think the, the knee-jerk reaction of the media has been, well, you know, this circus fight, Mayweather, kind of bad. If it's bad for anybody, it may be bad for the boxing pay-per-view business. How did that, how did you react to, to hearing that it was so close to this fight that you'd build so, you know, spent so long building to get to? You know, uh, really, we can only focus on our fight. I think we've got the best fight in the sport of boxing. You got two guys, the best in their division, uh, both in their prime. Both big punchers, um, you know. So this this fight kind of sells itself with Gennady's fan base, with Canelo's fan base, proven on, uh, you know, his pay per view sales. Um, yeah, I, I think how you described it is, I think this is the classic uh, boxing match, kind of a throwback middleweight championship fight, and then you have kind of the spectacle with Floyd and and Connor. I mean, both have huge fan bases. 
Um, but, you know, it doesn't make sense for, for us to really downplay that event because, you know, I mean, if the fans want to see that and if they buy that, that that's great. I, I just think that uh, I think both events can be successful. I think uh, there were a lot of frustrated fans uh, that, you know, paid $100 to watch the uh, the Mayweather-Pacquiao fight and, and were frustrated. And then you saw kind of a hangover effect on the pay-per-view numbers where people bought that and then said, I'm never going to buy another pay-per-view fight. So I think it definitely has you know, somewhat of an effect. Hopefully, you know, it's an entertaining fight. And, and I think everyone that, uh, you know, talks about Floyd and McGregor, they, they talk about uh, Canelo Triple G and, and vice versa. When we were on our PR tour, you know, they were talking about, the media was asking questions about our fight and then asking what, what everyone thought about the Mayweather-McGregor fight. So I think it kind of goes hand in hand and, and hopefully uh, both fights or both events uh, benefit from, from uh, uh, being close to each other. And Tom, uh, is it is it is it hard at all for you to to sort of hold that uh, pretty measured approach to <laughs> to the competition from from uh, from Mayweather McGregor when you know your co promo co promoter on 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 this fight Canelo Triple G you know Oscar De La Hoya is sort of out there uh, reacting much differently sort of getting <laughs> into the war of words calling it bad for boxing really really kind of, you know, uh, I guess approaching it as if he were uh, in a fight. Uh, you know, is it hard to sort of hold back and be the the, the voice of, uh, you know, calm or wisdom? Well, Oscar certainly has, has his own opinion on it. I, I think he uh, sees it for, you know, I mean, it's certainly, look, if, if people pay, you know, a, a big chunk of money on it and it's a terrible show, then certainly, you know, it, it could have an effect on our show. And I think that's the way Oscar's looking at it is that, uh, you know, this is something that's... Uh, it might not be, um, it might not be uh, beneficial for for the sport or or for our event. But you know, I always try to take a you know more positive uh, look on on things. But I you know certainly uh, I, I respect Oscar's uh, opinion on it, and and we just hope uh, you know that, that that it actually is an entertaining event. I think you know unfortunately with Floyd, he's proven that. Uh, you know, he's just very defensive. He's a defensive genius. So he, at this, at this, especially at this stage of his career, he's not going to take any risks in the ring. If if Connor has a chance to beat him in a boxing match, you know, Floyd would have to engage with him and actually have to start trading punches, and then Floyd, uh, Connor would have a chance to, uh, you know, maybe counter him or or catch him with a punch from a from an odd angle. And with Floyd just being very defensive. It's just, it's hard for a lot of people to imagine that's going to be a, a entertaining fight. No doubt. Tom, we're very thankful for, for how generous you are with your time uh, on the way out here. You know, you do a lot of business, obviously uh, separate from Gennady as well. Your, your long work with the Klitschko's. I know you got a really important September 9th card shaping up with Chocolatito's return and the rematch. A lot of, a lot of stuff going on there. Uh, specifically, I just want to ask you about the Klitschko's. I mean, Vladimir came back with such an epic fight against Anthony Joshua. The performance was, uh, it's the most proud I've ever been of him as a fan. I, I think that's my favorite performance of his and it was in a loss, right? So do you think we'll ever see him again in, in, in how, how important was him? I guess Vlad having that kind of performance at the tail end of his career where he fought with so much heart after fighting guys who weren't able to bring that out of him for many years. Yeah, that's a classic example, Brian, of, uh, you know, winning by losing. Um, you know, he, he gained so much respect from fans that might have been critical, you know, over the years of his style or, or you know, who he fought. And, uh, you know, here you have the old master, you know, Vladimir had dominated the heavyweight division uh, for so long, had such a historic run of the number of title defenses. 
and uh, getting in with a young lion. A lot of people didn't think he would even fight Anthony Joshua. I mean, Joshua, you know, has <laughs> knocked out everyone in the professional uh, ranks that, they, that he's gotten in the ring with and a uh, very young, very charismatic champion, you know, huge uh, following uh, not only in the UK, but internationally, but for, for Vladimir to go into the lion's den, you know, against the young champion in front of 90,000 people at Wembley stadium. I mean, that was just such a, I've been in boxing for a long time. I've never really experienced such a atmosphere like, uh, like that night. Um, and, you know, with that performance, not only in the heavyweight division, but just in general. I mean, that's got to be one of the most exciting fights I've ever, I've ever watched. Um, you know, with with Vladimir going down, I think it was the fourth round, then coming back and really hurting Joshua bad, and, and Joshua was really out of it for like two rounds, and then um, you know coming back and throwing that monster uppercut, and then uh, was able to to stop Vladimir. I, I, you know, as a fan, not even you know being involved with Vladimir. And, and his brother Vitelli for so long, but just as a fan, I'd love to see that fight again. I, I just think, uh, you know, it was really after that tremendous performance by, uh, by Vladimir, I think there's nothing to lose to do a rematch. And you certainly have to give uh, uh, Joshua a lot of credit, uh, everything that him and Eddie Hearn have accomplished over there in the UK. And, and uh, you know, he's pretty much taken over the heavyweight division right now, except, uh, you know, if Vladimir decides to do a rematch, then uh, we'll certainly, you know, we certainly... He's the one that's going to make the decision. We'll uh, support him either way. Um, but again, as a fan, I'd love to see that. Uh, <laughs> love to see that fight one more time. No question, Tom. You, Rafe mentioned that you're a voice of reason, a measured tone. This is, might sound like an insult, but this is actually uh, uh, praising you. You're one of the rare promoters who seems like an honest, good guy. And by the way, you work <laughs> with every promoter. I mean, the the great publicist Bernie Barmersall sent me a list of sort of Gennady's run. It was like against a different promoter every single time. You even worked with the Dark Lord Al Heyman, who never never speaks to the media. You made a deal there. What's sort of different about you? You you're, you seem like a regular good guy. This is a dirty sport, I mean, Tom. I mean, come on. I made a deal with Al twice, actually. The Dominic Wade fight, who was a mandatory, and then the Danny Jacobs fight. But... Uh, Look, I, I try to get along with everyone. I have a good relationship with Al. But, uh, you, you know, especially with Gennady, you know, there were so many people that didn't want to fight him. If I started excluding people that I that I would do business with, that would even limit <laughs> the number of people available to fight him even more so. But, uh, you know, classic example, and I didn't realize it when we were first putting the show together, but if you look at that September 9th show that you were alluding to, Brian, with the rematch of Chocotito and Rungasai and then the uh, mm -hmm. debut of uh, Inouye, over here in the U.S., the Japanese champion yeah. uh, from the WBO, and then you know Quadras and uh, uh, Quadras and uh, Estrada. Uh, well, yeah, <laughs> can't forget uh, El we... Gallo, uh, Juan Estrada. I mean, that, it, that's such a great uh, triple header. But uh, every there, there's six different promoters involved uh, in, in, with those six fighters. So you know, it's really um, you know kind of a testament of you know not only myself just putting that show together but you know each promoter has to take a risk of, uh, of putting their guys in you know those are all tough matchups and um, I think I think that's really I mean kind of you can go whether it's uh, Joshua Kuchko whether it's uh, Canelo Triple G or whether it's Triple Header it's like that's those are the type of shows and type of fight, fights that fans respond to and that's really what the sport of boxing needs and I really think that now 2017 is a banner year for boxing and and with September 16th, uh, you know, with the 9th as a prelude to September 16th, that's going to be really kind of the icing on the cake for uh, for 2017. Well, we look forward to that card just as we will. September 16th, Canelo, Triple G. I mean, come on. 
This is boxing. As, Gennady, as Gennady would say, we respect box. This is the Super Bowl for the year. Tom, thanks so much for your time. And again, congratulations on, on getting to this point with Gennady. And it would really have been an incredible five-year build in the state. No, I really appreciate that. Thanks for having me on, guys. And, uh, you know, just looking forward to the, to the ride leading up to, to September 16th.